TL Talk Radio, Season 5, Episode 36. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 36 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funyhatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funyhatton. And today we're going to have a conversation with an author um, who's been thinking about expanding student networks and... Um, as Randy and I think about equity in our school district and opportunities students have, this is a topic that connects um, very well with our work. So we're looking forward to talking today with Julia Freeland Fisher, author of Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. A little bit about Julia. Uh, she's the Director of Education Research at the Clayton Christensen Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank. Uh, she leads a team devoted to informing policymakers and community leaders on the power of disruptive innovation to transform schools. So, welcome to the show, Julia. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Lynn. Great to be here. Excited to have this conversation. So let's start the conversation off with a personal story about how you became connected to this need for expanding students' networks. Yeah, I appreciate this question. You should know every time I give a talk on the book, I make the audience members reflect and sometimes pair and share on how did you get here and who helped you? Mm. So who helped you get to where you are today? Um, and so I get this question a lot of like, what made you think about networks? And I always answered a little differently. I was just thinking like, oh, if people have heard me on Tom Vander Ark's show, I gave a different answer. And, and I think the reason I give different answers is because I've benefited by both what I've inherited in a network and chance encounters and a lot of good luck to have a range of people in my life who have helped me get where I am today. Um, and I think that we sometimes forget about that social side of opportunity in our education system. Um, I've spent the better part of the last 10 years working at sort of the intersection of education innovation and education advocacy and policy. And um, whenever you say education innovation, it's like, what the heck does that mean? And I sometimes think of it as what's the muscle we're getting better and better at building? What are we getting better at? And if you look at our traditional education systems, we are doing a lot, we're pouring a lot of energy into getting better at, at learning outcomes, um, sometimes to great success. And I think we also need to be building a muscle around connecting kids. Um, and so that's sort of the, the personal impetus and where I think the education system needs to maybe broaden our, our, our scope a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I know from the very beginning of the book and just connecting with this idea, it was, it was something that I, it was surfaced for me. It was something that I think I probably always knew, but it was like, wow, I don't think I've ever really thought about how we do that in schools and how we really support kids to, and how we actually acknowledge what networks they do come with and yes. how do we build upon those. So uh, definitely your work's a breath of fresh air and, and really a new lens by which we as practitioners can look at our work and how we advance um, the work of our students. 
So let's start with the why behind this book. And um, Randy and I are district leaders. We work regularly with our building leaders, our teachers, our board members, our community members. You know, what's the why? Why do we need to consider these structures and tools and designs um, that can really help us develop stronger relationships with learners? Yeah, and I'll I'll, um, obnoxiously do a think tank thing and slightly modify your question, which would be both stronger and more diverse relationships with learners. What we can talk about maybe later on is the fact that different relationships offer different value and they don't always have to be strong to be valuable in our lives. Mm -hmm. But I think the big why is that um, if you look at sort of the research around human development and the research around access to opportunity, relationships are undeniably critical. They help us get by, they help us get ahead, and they help us thrive. So you guys are probably even more steeped in the literature on youth development than I am, given the role you play. Um, but access to developmental relationships and um, and strong, caring relationships are critical for healthy development when you're young. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to sort of accessing the labor market an estimated half of jobs come through personal connections. So even if we're thinking a lot about skill development, thinking about network development is sort of a proxy for access to the labor market. And then if you don't find that compelling, because obviously I think many of us in this conversation think the purpose of education is broader than just getting a job. Um, If you look at the longest running studies of adult development, specifically the Grant and Gluck studies out of Harvard University, the key predictor in old age of longevity and happiness is access to warm relationships. So if, again, if we sort of take a step back from the day-to-day of teaching and learning and think about what we need to thrive, relationships should be right there, I think, at the center. Um, And you mentioned um, how your district is focusing on equity. Um, They need to be at the center, not just for the good of all students, but particularly for students who may not have the same networks into the knowledge economy as their more affluent peers because their parents are not working in that knowledge economy or because they are geographically isolated. Mm -hmm. And so we think a lot about the why as this is part of what it means to address opportunity gaps and that social side of opportunity gaps. And I appreciate the question modification because we are really thinking about, um, yes, we get to know our learners and we develop relationships, but you know, are they superficial and are we providing enough opportunities for learners to, um, meet others outside of our school walls, meet other experts in different content areas. So um, that's a good lens to look at it through. Thank you. Yeah. And I, th- I like on that front, um, I always hesitate to say this to people who are working really, really hard in schools every day, but sort of in spite of ourselves, we've created a very insular model of, of the classroom and the school. Um, and And in some ways, the school safety conversation that's so much in the zeitgeist right now is even ratcheting that up. Um, The cost of that, though, could be isolation, right? If we sort of are are too focused on an insular, tight-knit community, we're not actually diversifying our students' networks. Then lastly, I'd say, like, one of the one of the uh, reminders I had, one of the first talks I gave on this book before it had even come out was to a group of teachers in Los Angeles Unified. Um, And we had a great conversation and it was so apparent to me, like schools are our relationship hubs already, but we think of those relationships as inputs instead of outcomes in their own right. Does that make sense? So it's like their inputs to learning, their inputs to healthy development, their inputs to getting kids to progress, 
or to stay in school or to graduate successfully. But we have to start thinking of them as outcomes because they themselves have value. So let's talk a little bit about social capital. So how do you define social capital? And tell us a little bit about how certain relationships um, lead to different benefits in different circumstances. Yeah, so this term, um, like anything in the academy, it's sort of debated what it means. We offer our own definition in the book, but the, but the gist of the idea of social capital is that networks contain real value. So if you think about other sort of economic terms, our human capital, our, our skills and what we know that the labor market will pay us for, our financial capital, we can go out and get things with it. But social capital is the idea that networks themselves contain value in a lot of the ways that I just described, right? Access to information, opportunities, supports. Um, and the one of the many, I obviously could talk about this ad nauseum, and I know I'm on a podcast and need to be pithy, but one of the many, <laughs> um, one of the many insights that sociologists have had studying sort of what what value do networks actually have is that different types of ties in our lives offer different value and the distinction we use in the book that's a simple mental model but a helpful one i hope is the distinction between strong ties and weak ties so our strong ties are those people with whom we have the most frequent contact um, some researchers would say the highest levels of trust they take up the most bandwidth so anyone with like a spouse or a close family member or a close, close friend, right? Like it takes bandwidth to maintain those strong ties, but they also pay dividends because they're those who are most likely to look out for us, lend us money and support. And I actually think in the education system, we're actually pretty versed in talking about strong ties. We prize caring relationships, whether that's between peers or, or parents and their children or teachers and students. Um, but the sort of unintuitive thing is that we also have a whole bunch of weak ties in our lives. Um, and weak sounds like a value judgment, but as it turns out, um, a researcher back in the 70s was researching how people access jobs and discovered that people were more likely to find jobs through their weak tie networks because those networks contain more diverse information and were just more plentiful, right? It doesn't take the same amount of bandwidth to maintain mere acquaintances, right? We, we three could, well, you guys are probably strong ties given what you do day to day, but you know, you and I could, could follow up over email in a couple months and still have a totally um, useful exchange of information or ideas or helping each other out. But I would basically think of you as weak ties and that's not a judgment, right? <laughs> that's a, a description of the fact that you in fact also offer new information and sort of a broadening my horizons as well, right? So, um, I think we have to, to have a weak tie conversation in education and maybe we need to rebrand that because it doesn't sound great uh, because of that value that weak ties can offer. And the last thing I'll say, especially dealing with um, sort of adolescence uh, and, and students moving into post-secondary, one of my favorite researchers, a guy named Mario Luis Small, recently wrote a book called Someone to Talk To, and it looked at graduate students and how they were leveraging networks. And he cut through some of the conventional wisdom about strong ties being those that were most likely to confide in, because he found that graduate students were actually like confiding in with like Uber drivers and random people that they were meeting um, because those interactions actually presented as, as lower stakes. Mm -hmm. And it, if we think back to being adolescents, like sometimes you need low stakes interactions. You don't want to tell your mentor or your parent or your close, close teacher what's going on. Um, and that's another just, I think, virtue of weak ties that we can forget if we're in a sort of the stronger, the better <laughs> paradigm. As you're talking, I'm thinking of this word serendipity. And there's so much of, of life, so many opportunities that come just from those 
per chance encounters that we have with people that we would consider to be those weak ties. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you use that phrase because uh, one of the things we write about in the book and why we think it's important for schools to sort of embrace the importance of networks is that I think we should be working towards taking the chance out of some of those chance encounters um, and not leaving this to luck. And um, actually, Mario Louis Small, that same researcher I mentioned, a whole other strand of his research is on the fact that um, institutions are really brokers of social capital. So oh. as much as we can think like, oh, I bumped into someone in the hallway, <laughs> the design of that hallway, the schedule of the school, yeah. right? All of that is leading to the likelihood or, or, or lack of likelihood mm-hmm. that I'm going to bump into someone sort of by chance. Um, and so that converge on creepy social engineering, but I think school's really thinking about <laughs> what are the encounters that we're making more and more likely um, within and across our district. Mm-hmm. Is really and actually, the, it, that makes me think of what opportunities do we provide in that way for our teachers? Because oftentimes we view teaching as a sort of isolated in the walls of the four buildings. And I know in, in our work here, that's one of the things that's come up is I think we need to provide more opportunities for our teachers to to get out or see out and create those those value connections with people who are doing the same work, who experience the same challenges, who are trying to solve the same problems and might have um, the opportunity to work with to create new knowledge to solve those problems. Um, so it's not just students, but it could be all learners, young and old or adult as well. Absolutely. And if you think about how you design the roles in a school, we can you can have events or professional development where teachers are sort of shoved together in a room, but are there actually more flexible designs where people can cross pollinate, not just you know in the break room or mm-hmm. not just in these sort of traditional boxes that we've set up? And that it's a more prominent role of being an educator. It's yeah. a more prominent part. So let's uh, keep going here with the book and to uncover some other ideas. Um, in chapter four, you talk about um, ed tech that connects and how new technologies can disrupt students' networks. Um, and, you know, we've certainly seen some challenges with technologies in our, in our learners in our buildings. And want to know a little bit more from your perspective of why is it important for us to think about this in our school environments? Yeah, and... and- totally not dismissing any of the real challenges around technology. Um, and, and I think let's have a conversation about sort of the specific concerns that you guys are grappling with, because it'll ground some of my thinking. But I, when I started doing this research four or five years ago, the Christensen Institute, where I work, was best known for our work in online and blended learning. We had done a lot of research on sort of blended learning models that were cropping up. Um, and as a result, we were constantly getting uh, inquiries and sort of friendly outreach from the ed tech community, from vendors and organizations working in that community. So I was seeing a ton of the tools that were coming out. And it gave me pause because in our adult lives and our students in their non-school lives are using technology to connect at the press of a button. But the dominant ed tech market was content assessment and productivity tools, right? They were not social tools. They weren't tools to connect students. And so I started, I had this like funny little side hustle spreadsheet, which was anytime I did find a a, a tech tool that was connecting young people to relationships that they otherwise wouldn't have, I started logging it in this spreadsheet and sort of categorizing it um, and creating a map of that market, which luckily since that that started four or five years ago, that market has really started to grow um, in a couple pockets. 
Uh, supplemental college guidance is one. Industry access, access to industry experts, particularly to sort of infuse project-based learning is another. And the third is sort of a broad category of academic supports and tutoring where virtual relationships in those three categories are bring, being brought to bear in students' lives. And to me, that's a very different species of ed tech than the mainstream online learning ed tech conversation. And that's not to knock that, but I think it presents an enormous opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, and the big opportunity is twofold. One, we know that there are relationships that are out of reach for students, whether it's that I am less networked into the knowledge economy because of my parents' careers, or whether it's I live in a rural town and therefore I'm not actually exposed to certain industries, or whether it's I'm in a classroom with a 35 to one student to teacher ratio and I don't talk to my teacher most days, right? And anytime those relationships are out of reach, um, there's an opportunity for disruptive innovation to take hold and to offer something where the alternative is nothing at all. And that's what we see these tools doing. Over the long term, right, if you think about how these tools could grow, I'll give one concrete example. There's a tool called Nepris. Have you guys heard of this one? Nepris ports industry experts over video into classrooms, right? So if you're teaching a physics lesson, you can have a physicist chat over video with your students about fill in the blank topic. I love that I can't come up with an example. <laughs> like roller should coasters. Should have picked something a little more in my, in my uh, domain. Um, and, and so if you think about that, so that's one interaction. That's what the founder of Nepris, Shpari Raja, would call a spark, kind of, a spark of relevance to engage students. Now, over time, you could use that tool very differently. You could, you could provide a whole bunch of different sparks, a whole bunch of different connections to students across an array of disciplines, or you could have repeat interactions with that physicist where she then starts to give feedback to students on student work. She then starts to give um, sort of longer uh, descriptions of what she does in her day-to-day -day job for those students who are actually interested in this career path. And so you can think about these technologies both as a tool to diversify, but then potentially over time to strengthen. Um, so I, I just think it's a pocket of ed tech that for a long time was like hiding in the shadows and is going to start to bubble, uh, particularly for districts that take relationship gaps and opportunity gaps really seriously mm -hmm. um, because there are solutions to, to those particular access gaps. So you just gave us an example and wondering, um, do you have any other, can you paint any other stories or pictures of what this um, relationship-focused school might look like? And are there are there actual schools out there that are doing the kind of work that, that you think is exemplary that our listeners might want to tap into or learn a little bit more about? Yeah, definitely. Well, so let me give one more example of an ed tech tool that I think stretches all of our collective minds about the role that this can play. And then I'll talk about some schools that we looked at and are currently actually looking at. Um, another tool that we came across is a tool called Granny Cloud. Have you guys heard of Granny Cloud? Is that the one where yeah. the grandmas do the teaching? Well, so that's a, it's it's not quite that, okay. but yes, honestly. So this was this is an effort of Sugata Mitra, yeah. who's well known for his um, efforts to bring learning to um, Indian slums where where young people don't have access to formal education. And his initial experiment that got a lot of attention in the education space was sort of just putting a computer in a hole in the wall and seeing that students were teaching themselves um, and, and how powerful the innate curiosity and drive to learn is in young people, even those who are not in, in a formal education system. But he noticed that 
if students sort of got frustrated or disengaged, they would they sort of had trouble re-engaging or persisting in that very like in individual model of learning. Um, and so his initial experiment was in person and he had literal grannies from these areas in India go and encourage students, just encourage, right? Not formal teachers had no training, like were themselves not necessarily educated. Um, and he then tried to scale that or has scaled that through something called Granny Cloud, which is, it began as grannies, like literal older women on Skype, which is like <laughs> an image. Um, encouraging these students to persist. And now grannies range from like young men all the way up to older women, right? So it's a it's it's an adult role of encouragement and expressing care and curiosity and helping to motivate students rather than again, sort of old school ed tech where it's an online teacher. And that's our sort of only mental model of a relationship that can be useful. So I just like that story as again, pushing us to think about, well, yeah, what relationships would we want in young people's lives? Again, given teachers, student ratios, and the fact that we know motivation is a, is a real issue in schools. Mm -hmm. In terms of schools doing this work, um, I would never, partly because I think this work is so early days, I would never point to one and be like, there is the network school of the future. And I also think realistically, some of this is going to be responsive to local and regional labor market needs, especially at the high school level, right? So the types of people it would benefit you to meet may vary depending on the faster growing high wage sectors in your area um, or where you as an individual or your family want to end up. Um, but a couple schools we look deeply into, Big Picture Learning, you guys are probably familiar with, they're a, a national global network of, of internship-based learning high schools. Um, and although they're not leveraging technology in the way I just described, they are rolling out or have rolled out um, a platform called Inblaze, which is essentially an internship management system. Um, and, and what's most exciting to me about something like that is, is um, it's it's allowing the relationships that schools broker to not decay as quickly over time because they're actually stored in a live mm -hmm. cloud-based software. Um, so anyways, just to link that back to the technology point, but really big picture is about really strong relationships with educators in, in the building and then diversifying students' connections through internships beyond the building. Um, another example we point to in the book, which is like almost over, overexposed in this conversation is Summit. And we don't point to Summit for the platform that everyone talks about, but for the fact that they have students doing expeditions while their teachers are doing professional learning. And those expeditions involve getting to interact and learn with um, sort of non-teacher adults. Um, perhaps the tightest model in terms of an, a flexible network school is, is a school in New Hampshire called VLAX, Virtual Learning Academy Charter School. And VLAX started out like a statewide virtual school, right? So like traditional online courses, what you guys probably as pedagogical experts would be like maybe not super inspired by. Um, but what they've done from there is fascinating because they're multiplying the pathways by which students can earn competency-based credit. So not even course credit because New Hampshire has a, a strong sort of backbone of competency-based policy. Students can gain credit through offline experiences in their communities. And to me, that is sort of the, the gold standard because it's not just an extracurricular, okay, maybe you get to meet someone or it's not just a job shadow. And it's also not necessarily as onerous as an internship model, right? Because there's a lot of, and this is not big picture specific, but there are internship models where there is immense lost learning time 
where students are doing low cognitive demand work in a corner, not interacting with anyone. <laughs> um, but if you start to shrink those out of school experiences, um, you both are diversifying students' networks and also giving them hopefully sort of the highest quality experience in lower dosages. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are a couple examples. I'd be curious to know if you guys, if any come to mind for you, either what you're doing in your district or schools that you've come across. As, as you were talking about the um, connecting, you gave the example of bringing the physicist into the classroom to have um, some engagement. The thing that crossed my mind, I don't know if you remember, Lynn, we talked to Cajon Valley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They have... Um, Probably and they're know. using Nepris, actually, the tool that I mentioned. Okay, mm. yeah. So that that we had chatted with them a number of times, um, and their uh, Ed Hidalgo. Ed Hidalgo. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, so yeah, that was one of the connections. Other than that, I'm not. Nothing's coming to mind. How about you? No, I think um, there's a local county that's creating sort of like a clearinghouse of some of the opportunities that. Um, for learners, it's um, a clearinghouse of experiences that mm. learners can have with business partnerships and uh, community members. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a step towards it, but not exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting. When you think about how this could all actually get operationalized, right, there's sort of two layers of brokers that you need, you need at scale. You need, I think, the school to step in and be a more hands-on broker than than sort of just a list of experiences that you maybe post to your website. Mm -hmm. um, in part, especially if you want to start awarding credit, because teachers are still going to be the arbiters of that credit, right? And so that, that and that's where VLAX, I think, is a really it has a good architecture to support that. Um, the other thing you need, though, is sort of middleware technology, potentially, if you really want to scale this. Um, and that's what groups like Inblaze, LRNG, which recently got acquired by Southern New Hampshire, but is sort of a, a an online ecosystem to sort of source. It's, it's a more active thing than a clearinghouse. So I don't know. Ecosystem is a jargony word for what that is. Um, but where students can directly access those experiences that are on offer beyond school, but that that still can be credit bearing in mm -hmm. school, right? Yeah. And so that, I think that's a big architectural shift that is not inconsistent with a lot of the competency-based personalized learning efforts out there. But my hope is that people are doing this with relationships in mind, not just sort of experiences, mm -hmm. quote unquote, in mind. Yeah, good point. So we, in this season, added our lightning response questions. And the purpose of these questions is to really help our listeners um, find some additional resources. And you've already shared a bunch, and we'll link those in the show notes, Nepris and Granny Cloud and Big Picture Learning and VLAX. Um, but a couple of questions to see if there's anything else we can uncover for ourselves and our listeners. Are you ready? Yes, but you can tell that I'm really bad at lightning answers. <laughs> Who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about the importance of student networks? Yeah, so I have two. Um, one is a guy named David Shapiro who runs Mentor. Um, I have been fascinated by the fact that the mentoring world and the education worlds are completely separate mm. um, and and don't don't understand one another. And yet the mentoring world is expert in what it means to forge relationships with young people. I think we need to be bringing that knowledge to bear in the education system much more proactively than we are. So David is a great resource there. And the second is a woman named Caroline Hill, 
um, who was formerly with uh, City Bridge Foundation and, and now is doing incredible work um, around designing for equity. And one of the things I really worry about and, and turn to her expertise on is that we could be networking young people in a way that actually scales bias and distrust, right? If we don't actually figure out how to help young people and adults and young people and peers and young people and their educators connect across what may feel like lines of difference, whether that's race or class or geography. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a design challenge there in Caroline and her, and her team who are really tackling that. All right. Thank you. Next question. If you were recommending one book um, beyond who you know <laughs> to our listeners, what would that book be? Okay. Again, two. You can, uh, no worries. The first, uh, and these are just two books that I read while writing the book that really shaped my thinking are from outside of education. The first is called The Village Effect by Susan Pinker, who's a social psychologist and, and studies the power of relationships, particularly in that sort of arc of human development um, and why they remain important. And we should all just be like living in communes, basically, if we want to live to be old. Um, <laughs> and the second is, is a book called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle, who's an MIT psychologist. Uh, who's really, she would probably hate most of the things I just said about technology. She's um, very concerned about the rise of technology correlating with a, a marked decline in empathy. Um, but I just think she's she's real talk in some really important ways. Um, and I think that that idea of how we have conversation, how we maintain face-to-face connections, um, and, and even translating some of those principles into the design of online environments is... Um, is critical in 2019. All right. Thank you. And last question, is there an online site or resource or person from whom you learn regularly? My, my answer to this is super lame. I had written down Twitter because I was like, <laughs> I apparently only learn in like tiny nuggets of information. But I, I've really um, been working hard to just broaden the scope of people I follow on Twitter. Um, and, and I think in some ways use it as my news source as well, because I actually don't think you can do this work without also understanding like everything happening in our country right now. So pointing people to Twitter, which is the lamest suggestion ever. <laughs> we will include your handle. Are there any hashtags that you follow especially? We could include those too. Um, I mean, hashtag ed tech is a big one. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Sure. Yeah. All right. So, so not lame at all, because clearly you're doing some really uh, – for us at least, inspiring work, and I think work that hasn't really had that rich conversation yet, and you're definitely elevating it. Um, And it's an important conversation, especially, you know, those of us who are working towards more learner-centered, towards more um, a type of education that um, is really relevant and that learners can personalize themselves. And this idea of networks, I think, really injects an interesting and important aspect into the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's my hope. I think it's, um, in some ways, it's hiding in plain sight, but it's been a, a little bit missing from from the conversation. So even if you learn from Twitter, it's not lame. <laughs> <laughs> so to wrap this conversation up, uh, Julia, what's next for you? What are you working on now beyond the book and, and maybe deepening your work into this idea of networks? Um, what, what do you like to share with our listeners? Sure, Yeah. Um, I'd say I'm splitting my time 50-50, although sometimes it feels like 100-100 and I'm just like working on overdrive. But 
um, 50, 50 between talking about the research and actually talking a lot to philanthropy about what it would mean to invest in, in models that expand students' networks. Um, I think there's a huge mindset shift that still needs to happen. Um, and, and it's, it's a simple one in some ways, because I think everyone can appreciate the role that relationships have played in their lives. But, um, I, I thought I would be diving right into the sort of how, and I'm spending a lot more time talking about the why mm. with people, which is fine, but it makes me feel like a talk therapist some days. Um, the other, <laughs> the other half of my time, uh, is new research that I'm conducting in partnership with a team at the Gates Foundation called the Equitable Futures Team. And they're focused on interventions serving 16 to 24 year olds that have the sort of highest leverage in increasing social mobility and access to high wage jobs. And um, it's exciting because so many of the principles and even models that we studied in K-12 for this book translate to that post-secondary and workforce dev space. Um, and it also allows me to really keep a foot in sort of high school redesign, which I think is where a lot of this work could, could take off. Um, but we're looking at a variety of models from a group out in San Francisco and New York called Co-op, which is combating underemployment um, among recent low-income college grads by putting them in a room together and combating the isolation of being underemployed, which I think is missing from the skills gap conversation. We're also looking at a, a group called Beyond 12, which is a virtual coaching app um, for college students to access virtual coaches um, that not only sort of provides that relationship for young people, but really has a curriculum that is designed to empower those college students to reach out on campus and forge relationships offline um, with the encouragement of that virtual coach. So mm. models like that, that um, I guess I'm broadening into post-secondary and workforce, but there's a consistent thread around how do we design? How do we design with relationships in mind? Um, and we're going to be releasing some cool like diagrams and strategies and tactics that those organizations are using that um, I hope readers of the book will find useful and, and sort of a little more tactical than my big think tank ideas that I sometimes <laughs> Well, great work. We'll uh, look forward to following that. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And um, we've linked in the show notes a variety of resources that you um, share throughout the way, the books, um, Carolyn Hill, David Shapiro, mentor. So lots of great resources for our listeners. Awesome. And I should just plug at the end, we have a site called whoyouknow.org where we have that whole market map that I started building on an ugly spreadsheet. And now it's searchable and slightly prettier um, and some other resources there as well. And our listeners will find that in the show notes as well. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking conversations. So this episode's question, what if we started treating relationships as outcomes as opposed to inputs in our education system? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources that Julia shared today, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season five, episode 36. And that's all for now. We'll be back soon with another episode featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks so much, Julia. Thanks, Julia. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.